Hey, another great episode of Roundup is coming up next. If you like what you heard, please go online to redsearadio.org and donate, become a monthly sustaining member, and keep us on the air. Thank you and God bless. Good morning. Welcome to Red Sea Roundup. I'm your host, Gene Wilhelm. Today is Wednesday, October the 9th, 2019. And it is the Feast of St. Dennis, who is the patron of our very own Dennis Maka. And uh, St. Dennis was sent to modern-day France in about the year 250, uh, along with two companions. And he is... Uh, attributed to him is the conversion of Paris. And uh, in 258, he and his friends were beheaded and their bodies thrown in the Seine. And uh, his body was fished out of the Seine and buried. And it's now in a place where you can go visit his his uh, gravesite. And it's the Abbey of St. Denis. It's also the the feast of someone who's a little less known and isn't a saint, but he's a blessed, and that's Saint Blessed Gunther. And uh, I was attracted to this because, you know, I usually have somebody, the saint that a lot of people haven't heard of, uh, mainly because I, prior to looking this up, I had thought of Gunther as a rather secular name. And Gunther uh, lived in the uh, 1000s, and he was a relative of, of the Emperor Henry, and uh, up until the age 50, he wrote, wore, led a very secular life, in, I guess in all aspects, and was rather wealthy. And uh, he uh, was convert, uh, had this conversion to, uh, in which he became a monk, and he gave all his money to a particular abbey, and he decided he wanted to be the abbot of this abbey, and that didn't work out so well. And he basically got kicked out of the abbey and then went off as to be a hermit and established another one. The whole, I guess the point of this to me really is that uh, we bring a lot of baggage with us when we are Christians. And uh, sometimes we revert to what the culture says we ought to be, but that doesn't mean God is, isn't finished with us. Uh, uh, Gunther en- ended up uh, with a, a real group, good group of men, and he wouldn't be called blessed if he hadn't come around to living the life that God wanted him to live. And I've got Thaddeus Romanski in the, the studio with me today. Good morning, Thaddeus. Morning, Gene. And I think that uh, that's a wonderful um, saint for us to to maybe keep around uh, here at Red Sea Catholic Radio because we hope that we're a force for God working in people's lives who are maybe leading a very secular lifestyle or they're not as uh, engaged with their Catholic faith as as they could be, or maybe as they want to be, but they don't, they don't know how to take that next step or turn that corner. And, and I hope that we do that for people. And, um, we have stories of how that we have acted that way in people's lives. So blessed, blessed Gunther, please remember our humble little radio station. And remember each of us too, blessed Gunther, as, as we struggle to uh, live the life that God's called us to live. And we've got somebody in the studio with us today that's not normally here, right, Thaddeus? We do. We do have a very, very special guest this morning. I'm pleased to put on the air live in studio our new station director for the Central Texas area, KYAR 98.3, 
Station Director Robin Waters. Good morning, Robin. Good morning, Thaddeus. So thank you so much for having me here. How are you doing? What do you uh, think of being here in uh, Aggieland and, and away from your beloved West? Well, I, I love it down here in Aggieland. I've got a, a, actually a, two nieces and a nephew down here going to school. Okay. A lot of family that's been down here and uh, are uh, Aggie graduates, and uh, it's, uh, it's a great place to be. So tell, tell the listeners what you've, uh, you've been doing here these last couple weeks couple weeks. You've been here, I think, this is the third time you've been down to visit the studios and, and be with us. It is. I started last Tuesday. This is the third time I've been been down and doing some training with you and Dennis. And uh, I'm just real excited and honored to be a part of Red Sea Catholic Radio, and especially with KYAR in the, in the Central Texas area. It's something that I've always uh, supported and uh, and helped with. But uh, to be a part of this as a as a part of my daily life, in my work life, uh, out as evangelizing the Catholic faith is a, a great thing for me. Uh, this last Monday, we had a uh, an event where we honored our Immaculata members. That's the, that's the folks that, uh, that give monthly to the station. And just an appreciation for everything they do to keep us on the air, to keep the word of, uh, of the Lord going out on the airwaves. And so we just got together, uh, shared some snacks. And, and since it actually was the uh, Feast of the Holy Rosary, we prayed the joyful mysteries of the rosary and uh we did a scriptural rosary and uh just as a little uh side note if you uh, one of the books i really enjoy when praying the scriptural rosary is the gold book of prayers many of you who have been on the acts retreats are familiar with that a lot of churches will give those out and it just really brings the rosary to life it helps me to maintain my focus on each of the mysteries and uh it's a it's a wonderful way to pray the rosary but uh, but I've been spending uh, a lot of time learning this last week and a half. Yeah, just got a, a lot to learn. I've and your your out. time with us also kind of kicked off with a bang on that Monday morning because what were you doing that Monday morning, the very first day that you started? Oh yeah, I, I got to use my skills of killing wasps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got to use that those skills out at the uh, tower site, and uh, right. it was uh, inundated by. A large number of wasps nests. So, uh, right. but uh, that's something. Being a country boy, I got to, I've done that before. So. Yeah. And then the first visit that you had to Bryan College Station was for the mass of commemoration at St. Joseph's School, and you were on the air for the first time. We just kind of threw you into the uh, into the mix. That's right. You did and a great job. That actually was the uh, the first time I'd been uh, part of the station, other than in uh, killing a pest. <laughs> And and that was an honor to be there with uh, Bishop Joe. Yeah, that was a it was a wonderful day, beautiful day. Um, Robin, any um, any other events going on in the West community or elsewhere in Central Texas that you'd like to talk about? I'm kind of putting you on the spot. If you don't have anything off the top of your head, that's that's okay. Well, actually, there are a few things going on that we've been uh, putting out on the airwaves this last week. Uh, this Saturday at noon in West, there's going to be a rosary rally. And so we're just calling the entire community together to pray the rosary together. We're going to, the theme is going to be for peace. And so uh, come on out. And uh, as a reminder, bring your lawn chairs. It's going to be a beautiful morning and we can can spend some time together and pray the rosary. Uh, also in our area, there's just a lot of things going on. Uh, I believe on Sunday, they're having an event over at St. Jerome's they're having a special speaker in. I don't have the information in front of me, but uh, 
you could uh, take a look at our website to see that, and we'll, you'll also hear that on the air. There's a lot going on uh, all over. Uh, this is particularly a time of the year when a lot of parishes are having fall festivals and the like. Uh, so there's always a chance to get something good to eat somewhere in the area, isn't there? Absolutely. And, and in our area, you know, we just have so many churches that uh, and they all have their specialty, you know, fried chicken or barbecue or something like that. And I'm looking forward over these next few weeks to uh, going to every parish in my listening area to sit down and, and visit with the uh, the people that are uh, working the offices there to get to know them better, to visit with the pastors and to let them know that we're there for them. We're there to to promote the Catholic faith, to to promote their parishes and any events they have going on. Uh, we're there for them. And I want them to know that. Their mission is our mission is how we like to, to look at it. You know, we're, we're there to um, increase the, the faith and devotion of the parishioners at, at, at their church in their local area, their local community. And we hope that we're enhancing um, parish life in, in each, in each place. That's what, that's what we're about. Um, Gene, to turn things back to uh, the Brazos Valley for a moment, Maybe we should talk about the benefit dinner. What do you think? Are you looking uh, forward to that? I am looking forward to that. As you know, I am a tremendous fan of Father Albert Haas. Yes. Tell us a little bit about Father Albert, uh, what you love about him. Uh, I, I love his faithfulness to the church. I love his sense of humor. Uh, and I, he's just such an interesting character. Uh, what little I know of his life, he spent time as a missionary in China and uh, he just really enjoys life. And uh, what what better way to be a Christian than to enjoy life? That's right. We're supposed to be happy warriors, yeah? That's correct. Yeah. So this is our annual KEDC Red Sea Catholic Radio Benefit Dinner for the Brazos Valley. As you know, it's on November 7th, Thursday, November 7th, at St. Thomas Aquinas Catholic Church in College Station. They are always so good to host us. Each year we're, we're back there. We love being at St. Thomas Aquinas. We are very appreciative of Father Albert LaFerre, the pastor there, not to be confused with our keynote speaker, Father Albert Haas, um, Haas, excuse me, uh, who's going to be coming to speak with us about four qualities of contemporary holiness. And he's already let slip that one of them is gratitude, but we're not going to learn about the other three until he actually speaks. But that fits well with our theme because our theme is in all things, give, give thanks. thanks. Yes. And that's, and that's, uh, sometimes that's a little difficult to do when we don't get what we think we deserve, but, but then we always think we deserve better than we do. Yeah. But we're going to hopefully give you something to be grateful for that meal. We're going to have a little pre Thanksgiving meal or we're going to have a thanksgiving meal early so it's going to be a nice spread um we're we're still in negotiation about what the main course is going to be but we're going it's going to be a traditional thanksgiving main course for sure okay and people are going to uh eat their fill and they're going to get their just desserts but not (laughs) just dessert not just dessert that was for you gene thank you very much i appreciate that i uh I failed to te- wish welcome everybody when we started out. I, I do want to welcome our listeners at KEDC here in the Brazos in uh, the Brazos Valley, KYAR in Central Texas, and KINF in Palestine. 
We really appreciate your your being here with us, and you can give us a call if you want at 85-LOVE-RED-SEA. That's 855-683-7332. And uh, in the second, the last part of the program, we're supposed to have Steve Weidenkopf with us. He's going to be talking about the Battle of Lepanto. Uh, and uh, and that was uh, the, that victory came on October seventh, so almost six hundred years ago, and uh, it's where we got the na- the feast of Our Lady of the Rosary. It was originally called the feast of Our Lady of Victory because she gave us victory there. Uh, I've got an event here in the, the in, in the Brazos Valley that uh, has been going on for a number of years now. The Ag- the Knights of Columbus here at St. Mary's, the Aggie Knights, the college. Uh, aged group of knights has having their annual turkey fry and what the turkeys will be available on november 24th uh and you can pick those up out at saint anthony's pavilion which is out on highway 21 if you want more information on this uh the best thing to do is to to email aggie knights a-g-g-i-e-k-n-i-g-h-t-s at gmail.com and they have four types of turkeys they're 45 dollars a piece uh, and I have not had one in the past because normally we're not here for Thanksgiving, but I understand they are just absolutely astounding uh, turkeys. And uh, so I don't know what else we got going on here in the Brazos Valley. A uh, whole lot. I just want to go back and encourage everyone again to come to that benefit dinner on November 7th. Uh, I didn't get a chance to remind people that Seats are filling up. Now, there's still room, but it's coming uh, closer and closer to the deadline, and we're getting more and more interest uh, every day. So if you want to get individual tickets, those are $25 a piece. There's individual seating. And, of course, we've got the tables that you can reserve if you are um, a a parish, um, a group like, say, a Knights of Columbus Council, we have several of those before, um, maybe an individual business, and those tables are eight people per table, and those start at $500 all the way up to the big whopper $5,000 table donation. And if that, the food is as good and as plentiful as you say it is, those seats are going to be a lot more full after the dinner than before, right? That's right, Gene. You're not kidding. You're not kidding. So go on to... Um, RedSeaRadio.org slash benefit, and you can read up about um, Father Albert Haas. You can learn about the details for the benefit dinner, and you can also get your tickets reserved by going again to RedSeaRadio.org slash benefit. So we're going to be back on the other side with Professor Steve Weidenkopf discussing the Battle of Lepanto and Our Lady of the Rosary. Welcome back to Red Sea Roundup. I'm your host, Gene Wilhelm, and we will have our uh, guest, Steve Weidenkopf, with us in just a moment. We had some technical difficulties in contacting him. Uh, we are working to contact him again. Again, we're talking about the Battle of Lepanto, and the Battle of Lepanto was fought in the 1500s, and it is a time when the Catholic forces, naval forces, defeated the Ottoman Turks, 
the Islamic forces and uh, through intercession to the Rosary. And uh, this is where we got the Feast of the Holy um, Our Lady of the Rosary. And uh, Our Lady of the Rosary is the patroness of St. Mary's here in College Station, the college church for our Texas A&M students. And uh, so we're really excited about what's going to be happening here. Uh, Steve is uh, a very uh, knowledgeable person. Steve, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Oh, we sound much better than we did earlier. Oh, good. Steve, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. You said you're Christendom College in the graduate program. Uh, Tell us about yourself and about Christendom College a little bit. Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, I am an adjunct professor uh, in church history at the Christendom College Graduate School of Alexandria, Virginia. So, um, you know, people might know of Christendom College itself. It's it's an undergrad campus that's in Front Royal, Virginia. It's about an hour and 15 minutes west of Washington, D.C. There's about five or so hundred, uh, 500 or so uh, undergraduate students there on the campus. And then a little closer into D.C. in Alexandria, Virginia, is our graduate campus. And we have all told, probably online, as well as those who take classes uh, on campus, about 100 or so uh, students enrolled in our programs there. So, um, you know, we're, we're the graduate arm of, of that uh, you know, undergraduate campus out in Front Royal. And we offer a master's of theological studies in various concentrations, systematic theology, uh, moral theology, uh, scripture as well, and spirituality. So um, we've been around for a very long time. Frankly, we started out as an independent institute. It was known as the independent or the Notre Dame, sorry, Notre Dame Institute uh, back in the late 60s, early 70s, uh, founded by Monsignor Eugene Cavan, formerly of Catholic University. Uh, and then a few, so we were private independent institution all the way up until the late 90s, 1997, and we, we merged with Christendom College to become the graduate school of that college. Oh, okay. And so what we have then is uh, something that's very special. I, I know that because one of, the gra- uh, one of the people that was at the graduate school is Adam Earhart, and he was a, uh, a minister here at St. Mary's for uh, several years, and uh, he, uh, just knowing what, what he learned there is, is just outstanding. So... Uh, I know yeah, that's think, I mean, the campus is, you know, the campus is very beautiful. We have great faculty and, uh, you know, we're all faithful to the magisterium of, of the uh, of the church and, you know, take the oath of fidelity to the magisterium annually. So if you, you know, you come for an education here at Christendom uh, or you hear or write or read anything from a Christian professor, you know that it's going to be within the bosom and the heart of the church. And you have a recent book that you published that uh, I've read several uh, several pages out of that about what we're going to talk about the battle of lepanto would you just talk just a minute or two about that book and and uh, what people can gain from reading that book yeah sure so um actually i've written a number of different books and uh the battle of lepanto i've covered in in two of them actually so uh the first book i wrote uh, was published by catholic answers back in 2014 it's called the glory of the crusades uh, in which I look at some of the modern myths and, and misrepresentations and, and mischaracterizations of the crusading movement, uh, including the Battle of Lepanto, and discuss in that book uh, in a little bit, or a little bit of detail. And uh, I also wrote another book for Catholic Answers a few years after that called The Real Story of, of Catholic History, Answering 20 Centuries of Anti-Catholic Myths. And that book is um, really a, kind of a historical apologetic work. It's a, it's a book that has 55 
myths, common questions that people hear about the history of the Church specifically that are obviously false, uh, but very prevalent in our modern age, and then uh, I provide uh, kind of the origin or background to those myths, and then how a Catholic in today's world can answer those myths with with, by, with authentic historical scholarship. Uh, and then my most recent book, as you as you just mentioned, is was published earlier this year by our Sunday visitor called Timeless, A History of the Catholic Church. And that is a one-volume narrative, detailed narrative history of the Catholic Church from Pentecost to the modern age. Uh, and so in there, obviously, there's a section on uh, the, the, uh, the Ottoman Turks and the upheaval of the 16th century and the battle between the Turks and Western Europe and Christendom during that time frame. And obviously, the Battle of Lepanto fits it's very prominently into that narrative. And it's not a thousand page book. It's only 538 pages plus all the not, supplemental yeah. materials. <laughs> not right. Exactly. It's not, it, it could have been a thousand page book, but I, what um, I tried to do was, was, uh, you know, it's, it's written for, you know, uh, a more accessible or it's hoped, I hope it to be a more accessible volume for, you know, uh, a great number of people. And it's not overly scholarly, although I do have footnotes, uh, extensive footnotes throughout the text for those who are more interested in, in pursuing the sources and looking at those in more detail. But uh, I tried to write it in a very narrative way, in a very compelling way, in a caging way. Uh, so, you know, the average Catholic in the pew, so to speak, uh, can, can easily pick it up and uh, and follow the story of the Church's history. And I divide it into various subsections, so they're kind of bite-sized chunks, I like to call them. You can read the book for a while and put it down, section to section, pick it back up, you know, a few days later or whatever, and then continue on with the story, and you really haven't missed much. So it's organized very much in a way uh, for the for the average reader. Or average reader right? And each section has a title on it, and it's about five or six pages or something like that. It's, like you say, very readable so that you can you – can and it's written in – language that a layman can understand. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad to, to, to hear you uh, say that, and uh, that wasn't my intent, so I'm glad that that, that came through. Okay, now, now let's talk a little bit about Lepanto itself. Where is Lepanto, and what is the, why was it significant that this was a victory? Sure. So, well, uh, Lepanto is in the Gulf of it's, uh, in the Gulf of Corinth in, in modern day Greece, and it was a fortified port, really, for um, the Turkish Ottoman Turkish fleet uh, that tried to control the Mediterranean Sea during the 16th century. So, the Turks uh, had been the Ottoman Turks specifically had been engaging in warfare against Western Europe, against Christendom for a number of years, a number of centuries, or rather, by the time we get to the late 16th century. Uh, they first kind of began incursions into uh, what is what we would call Eastern Europe uh, in the late 13th century. Uh, it really wasn't until the, the 14th century where you begin to have some significant battles between European forces and Ottoman Turkish forces. Uh, and that continued on through the 15th century with a number of sieges of, of uh, you know, European cities, for example, Belgrade and modern Serbia uh, in 1456. Uh, there was a great siege and in some some other land incursions and invasions during the 15th century. But then when you get into the 16th century, the Turks really began to try to focus on controlling the Mediterranean Sea, which was um, obviously and still is a very strategic body of water in the world and especially, uh, you know, for Europe. Uh, in combating them, really, primarily in the 16th century, were the Habsburgs. So the Habsburgs, primarily of Spain, controlled most of the western area of the Mediterranean. The Turks really had control of the, the eastern part of the Mediterranean. And so what they had wanted to do 
uh, was to gain control completely uh, of the sea. And, and they did so in a, in a series of different invasions. So they invaded the, the island of Malta in 1565 um, in the hopes of controlling that strategic location within the Mediterranean Sea. They were beaten back by the Knights Hospiters under the command of uh, you know, Jean de la Valette. Uh, and an overwhelming Turkish force invaded the island. The you know, knights held out uh, against overwhelming odds. The Spanish relief force came and helped them uh, defeat the Turks as well. So Malta was spared and saved. But despite that, that setback, the Turks continued to try to uh, progress through the Mediterranean. They invaded and captured the island of Cyprus in uh, 1571, right before the Battle of Lepanto in, 15, in 1570, rather, in 1571. Uh, you have the Great Battle of Lepanto, where which was it was in the fall, so the early fall around this time in October of 1571, the Turkish fleet had harbored or, or had you know anchored in the the Gulf uh, for the winter, but they were building a, a large invasion force uh, to go and attack Rome. In particular, it was the force that was going to invade Italy, try to conquer the city of Rome, uh, and then be able to advance northward through the Italian peninsula up into the heart of Christendom and to really eradicate Christian Europe. Uh, and Christendom as a whole was the goal of the Turks at the time. Now, the Turks themselves, uh, what what uh, most modern people don't remember, we just think of Turkey and think of it as, as an Islamic land. And yet in the early church, like, for example, the seven churches that are spoken to in the book of Revelation, they're all from the western part of Turkey. And what is today Turkey, Asia Minor. And and so the Turks themselves were not from that area originally, were they? No, they weren't. That's, that's exactly right. So, yeah, I mean, Turkey was very much a, you know, a ancient Christian uh, territory and, you know, had been converted. That area had, had converted to Christ very early on in the church's history and had remained Christian, you know, up until the time of, of uh, you know, Islam, there were, with the rise of Islam in the 7th century, there were some incursions there. But really, it wasn't until you get to the 11th century when you have a different kind, a different group of Turks uh, from the Ottomans, a group known as the Seljuk Turks. Uh, they come down off of the Asian steppe, so, you know, far off into the east, China, Mongolia, they come off the Asian steppe. They come into what was then known as the Byzantine uh, Imperial Province of Anatolia. So the you know the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, Christian Empire in, in the east, um, and they the Seljuk Turks uh, attacked uh, Anatolia, defeated the the Byzantines in a great battle called the Battle of Manzikert in 1071, and then over the latter stages of the 11th century, they then uh, conquer and, and take over that that province of of Anatolia. Uh, and then, you know, later on, you have the rise of the Ottoman Turks in the late um, 13th century, early 13th century, late 13th century. And they, what the Ottomans do is they're able to combine really a, a group of disparate tribes and, and other different kinds of Turks that occupied what was Anatolia, and they consolidated power. And so that they grew their empire from that consolidation of power and from eventually the uh, the, their besieging and their conquering of the city of Constantinople in 1453. So um, that's kind of you know one of the high water uh, marks or one of the high kind of turning points of Turkish history is the con- conquest of Constantinople and and the turning them uh, you know their their group then into a large imperial presence in that area of the world. And they they were rather fierce. Uh, in their approach to warfare, weren't they? And and, and they didn't. It wasn't just the to the west of there, they also wanted to conquer everything all around the Mediterranean on, on all sides, even the places that were already Islamic. Oh, 
yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, they were very, very much involved in in trying to, uh, you know, control, you know, as, as we mentioned, Christendom, you know, Western Europe, um, you know, the, the Eastern areas uh, as well. And, and yeah, they were very, very, very focused on uh, invasion, imperialism. I mean, it was a it's a very militaristic group of people. Uh, and it was really, you know, it was, it was uh, kind of understood that every sultan of the Ottoman Empire would add at least one significant new piece of territory to the empire uh, during the course of his reign. And so those that didn't were, were seen as kind of weak and ineffective and, and you know, bad rulers. So mm-hmm. it was always the goal of their, of their leadership, of their ruler to, to enhance their territory. And, um, you know, and in some cases it wasn't. You know, maybe they had designs on some of the territory of their Muslim neighbors, but um, the real focus for them, though, was was the conquest of East, of Western Europe, rather of you know, Eastern Europe and Western Europe of Christendom. Yes, uh, my guest today is uh, Steve Weidenkopf, and we're talking about uh, specifically about the Battle of Lepanto. And we're going to talk about a lot of things that go with that. I would invite our listeners who might be interested or have a question for Steve or for anybody here at Red Sea to call us at 85-LOVE-RED-SEA. That's 855-683-7332. Steve, uh, what I I think I'm hearing is that the Ottoman Turks, their conquests were probably more geopolitical and uh, to further Islam is maybe only secondary motive for what they did? Well, that's, I mean, that's a good question. I think it's it's I don't think it's it's uh, overly accurate necessarily to kind of contrast that as an either or. I think it was a both and, frankly, from their perspective. They they understood the the need to uh, obviously embrace the Islamic concept of uh, of the a dichotomy of the world, right? Where Islam sees the world in two different camps. There's the House of Islam, all you know, the believers of Muhammad and Allah, and Muhammad is the prophet, and then everyone else. Uh, in the Islamic worldview, is is known or is is within what's called the House of War, and so it, it is the job of those in the House of Islam through jihad, through violent struggle, to incorporate those or to have those in the House of War become members of the House of Islam through conversion. So, I mean, the Turks had that that notion obviously from their faith from Islam. So, I think there was there was a, obviously a, a motivational piece from that, but. Uh, in yeah, sure, in a more kind of you know humanistic uh, understanding, uh, you know, a material understanding of things, there was the geopolitical understanding of things, as you put it. Definitely, there was a, a motivation or desire to increase the boundaries of the empire, acquire land, acquire territory, increase their wealth, uh, and, and you know, frankly, do what empires do, right? Conquer peoples and subject them, and uh, and increase your own power and authority and influence in the world. So, I think it's a both and, frankly, not necessarily an either or. And so what what we have then is that same thing is really still going on in Islam. I mean, the, 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 that thinking has not really changed a whole lot, has it? Or, or can you speak well, to that? Well, yeah, I mean, in, in modern Islam, right? I mean, yeah, the, the whole history of, you know, the modern Islamic world and especially, you know, the Arab world is, is very – uh, diverse and, and all, you know, full of all kinds of different uh, factors involved and in, in why the world is the way it is there now and, and what the outlook is in that area. But yeah, I mean, that's that's not necessarily changed. There, you still have Islamic groups. You know, ISIS perhaps being the most recent example who you know desire to cons- to consolidate territory, to reestablish a caliphate, to 
Um, and that includes taking over, you know, land of, of fellow Muslims, uh, as well as trying to, you know, either harm and or take land uh, from a more, you know, Western Christian perspective. Uh, so, yeah, that, 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 that whole dichotomy between the House of War and the House of Islam still exists. That's still obviously the worldview and understanding of, of, of some Islamic groups and, and, and peoples today. But I think a lot of modern Islamic nations, uh, you know, they try to balance that whole notion of of a religious fervor, a religious understanding, and, and then obviously a more materialistic understanding of, of a geopolitical worldview and entering into alliances with, with non-Arab you know Arab nations and, and even, you know, uh, having a violent contests with other Muslim nations, depending upon, you know, their own foreign policy. So I think it's, I think the modern world is, is, it's a bit more complex, uh, especially the modern Islamic world, because of just the interconnectedness of our society and our and and of of world and technology and the world economy much more so than it was obviously in the late 16th century. Uh, right now, we, we we when we think of Islam, we think of the Shiites and the Sunnis. Uh, to what group did the Ottoman Turks belong? Yeah, so the Turks were Sunnis. Uh, so the vast majority of Muslims, so the Shiites are uh, the small minority group uh, within Islam, and so uh, they, the vast majority of, of you know groups that you deal with in the Islamic world are going to be Sunni. So ones that that do not believe that the caliph has to be a direct descendant of Muhammad as the Shiites do, as the Shiites believe. Okay. Now, what was going on in Europe at this time? Eu- Europe was kind of getting a little splintered itself about this time, wasn't it? Yeah, in the late 16th century, by that point, you know, the time of the Battle of Lepanto in 1571, you've, you've had Europe undergo a pretty significant transformation uh, religiously uh, and even in some cases politically. Uh, you know, you have the, the great beginning of what I term the Protestant Revolution, which is more frequently referred to as the Protestant Reformation in the early 16th century, with Martin Luther and his writings and his teachings and his rebellion against the church uh, really began, at least officially, you know, it's usually marked in 1517. Uh, and then so, you know, you have Luther dies in 1546. So right before his death, you have the calling of the Council of Trent in 1545. And so the, the council actually meets or, or conducts its business, we should say more accurately, over the next 18 years. There's a couple of long pauses when the council is suspended and then re- reassembled later on. Uh, but eventually, the Trent, you know, Council of Trent finishes its business in 1563 as, as a way to try to reform uh, the church, right? It restates Catholic belief and Catholic doctrine in response to this Protestant heresy and attack. Uh, you know, the church reinvigorates itself in terms of reinforced discipline, of trying to get rid of some of these ecclesiastical abuses that were prevalent, uh, you know, up in, in the 15th and 16th, early 16th century of the church that kind of helped spur about this this Protestant revolt. Uh, and then there was a great flourishing of spirituality at the time as well. So the church is, is engaged in dealing with, you know, European rulers that have have left the faith, that have embraced Protestantism. And so now there's a political element to that as well, that, you know, these, these although, you know, even Catholic uh, rulers of Christendom didn't always necessarily do, you know, during that time what, what the Pope wanted them to do, or at least what his foreign policy objectives were. Uh, there was always disagreement there. Uh, but it becomes a, a different, more added element now and a heightened element with the kind of 
official breakup of of the church uh, into you know a Protestant camp and, and a Catholic camp, so to speak, uh, in the 16th century. And so, and you know, Europe is engaging too at this time, and it's it's just beginning, and it's going it's beginning, and it's it's going to continue on into the 17th century. In many areas, uh, you know, a war of a, a um, religious war, really, where you have Catholics and Protestants of Europe fighting each other. Um, you know, over religion and over matters of, of politics, influenced by religion. So, it's really a, it's a it's a very difficult time in the history of the church and the history of, of Western Europe, frankly. And so, when the Turks begin to assemble this invasion force in the Gulf of Lepanto at the end of the 16th century, the Pope, you know, is getting intelligence. The Pope at the time is Pope Saint Pius V. He's getting intelligence reports that this. This fleet is massing, that the Turks have, you know, designs to invade Rome and conquer Rome and then, you know, attack the heart of Christendom. And so he, you know, he sends pleas out to the, to the rulers of Christendom uh, asking for their help and, and tries to establish a military alliance to, to marshal forces to go and defeat this massive invasion force. And frankly, most of the Western European rulers, uh, even Catholic ones, uh, kind of rebuke him or not rebuke him, I should say, but kind of rebuff him is a better word. Uh, they don't really listen to his his pleas. Uh, the only one that really does is King Philip II of Spain uh, in some of the in Venice, in particular, one of the Italian city states. Uh, the only ones that really agree with the Pope that this is a, a clear and present danger of this Ottoman invasion force and that there should be a military alliance entered into. So the Pope is dealing with all of that at the same time. So it's, it's a very, you know, uh, contentious and very difficult time in the history uh, of the church. I want to remind our listeners that you're listening to Red Sea Roundup. Uh, I'm Gene Wilhelm, and my guest today is Steve Weidenkopf. And we're, going, we're talking about the Battle of Lepanto and Our Lady of the Rosary. We'll begin Our Lady of the Rosary in a little bit. But uh, in the meantime, uh, just a little bit more background here. So what, what was really happening uh, in Europe, is, from what I'm hearing you say, is that the, uh, the children— of the Pope, is the 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 uh, monarchs who were children of the Pope in a sense, were establishing their independence. They must have been like teenagers or in the late late teens and early twenties, trying to establish that they were really independent, uh, among other things. Sure. Yeah, that's I mean, that's a good way to put it. And and it's not uh, it's not as if you know previous rulers, um, you know, in, in previous centuries in Christendom didn't uh, also, you know, come into contact with and conflict with the Pope on various, uh, usually political means or political affairs, although sometimes spiritual. But uh, yeah, that, I mean, that did occur in previous centuries. But but really what you have in the 16th century that is kind of unique and different is this, um, you know, growing number of secular rulers that are embracing the Protestant uh, movement, the Protestant revolt, and completely separating themselves, right, from Rome and from any kind of, of uh, influence of the pontiff. So it, it's one thing to be, you know, let's say the Catholic king of France, uh, as Philip the, the Fourth was, Philip the Fair, and, and, you know, consider yourself Catholic, um, yet be excommunicated for things that you did that were in conflict with the Pope. But but still, consider yourself Catholic. You don't you not you know have uh, have a belief or an understanding that you're you know you're not Catholic. 
um, you know, that's in the in the in the 1300s and the 14th century. So then you, if you fast forward into you know now the 16th century. By this point, now you have monarchs who are trying to establish complete control of the areas in which they they reign, um, and they still won't get to be necessarily absolute monarchs until a, a bit in, in the future. But it's you see the beginnings of it here, and and part of that kind of desire to control their their whole geographic territory is is to control everything within that geographic territory and one of the things obviously is is to try to control the church so you have some monarchs who remain catholic who who have you know conflicts with the church because they want to control the church but now and that happened previously as well but but now you have you know christian kings and who want to become still remain christian in their eyes but become completely separated from the pope uh, and, and not even be beholden to him in anything, uh, whether faith or even politics. And so you have that in England, you have that, you know, happening uh, in in uh, Germany, in the, you know, the German areas, obviously. Uh, and, and you have even conflicts, you know, with the Pope among various Italian city-states, although, of course, they obviously remain Catholic. So so it's a very difficult, you know, political time and a, and a stressful one, frankly, for, for all the popes during this period of time. Tell, let's talk a little bit about the uh, the uh, is the uh, Ottoman navy. Uh, were were those sailing ships, or were those primarily uh, had people down in the galleys uh, rowing the boats? Yeah, good question. So these, so the fleets, both the, the Ottoman fleet and any Christian fleet sailing the Mediterranean at the time, uh, were oared ships, right? So you have their. Um, they have sails. They would have a main sail and a few other sails that, that they could use if they had the wind in their favor. But for the most part, these are vessels that are being propelled by, you know, human power, human oarsmen, um, oarsmen below decks, right, rowing the, the ships. I mean, the the best example or best mental picture, you know, I can give is uh, is akin to the great movie Ben-Hur, right, with Charlton Heston back in, I think, the late 50s, early 60s, that movie was. And uh, you have that great scene where he's below deck. And now, obviously, that's, this is a much earlier period of time that the movie is portraying. It's time of, of Christ and the Roman Empire. So, But you have the same concept. The concept is the same. You have people below deck. You know, they're chained, if they're, especially if they're slaves or if they're captured prisoners of war. And the Turkish fleet had, um, you know, estimates vary, but probably around twelve to 14,000 Christian prisoners who were chained to their oars to row these Turkish ships and to propel the ships forward. Um, and so if you had the wind, you know, against you, you, you couldn't use your sails. And so you were rowing, you were you know, relying upon the oarsmen below deck to propel your vessel. Uh, whereas if you had the wind in your favor, then you could use your sail and release some of your oarsmen from below deck and put them on deck and actually use them to, uh, to help you win the fight, because the way that these ships fought was, you know, this is before the the the, the mass use of of gunpowder and cannons. Although there were cannons and gunpowder in Lepanton, we can talk about that later because it's a very important part of the battle that concerns that technology. But um, for the most part, the way that these ships fought was the idea was to ram your 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 opponent's vessel. Uh, so you had to have enough speed to get close enough to your opponent's vessel, and then you rammed them. And then once you were able to ram that ship, you threw grappling hooks from your ship to, to the opponent's ship, 
lashed the ships together and then you, you know, jumped over to your opponent's ship or you uh, swung over on ropes and you had your soldiers, basically, you know, sailors defeat or try to defeat and kill the sailors of the of the enemy vessel. Uh, and so if you had more men above deck, you know, who weren't below deck rowing, then you had at least a numerical superiority and an advantage when you were able to ram your ship against the, the opponents, against your enemy ship. Uh, one of the things I think it was in your book, I don't know exactly where I saw it, that, that the fact that, that these were oared ships meant that the ships needed to stay reasonably close to land so that they could take on provisions and water for all the people that were necessary to row the, 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 the ship themselves. Is that Exactly. Yeah, that is a, that is a fact I mentioned in my book. I mean, these are littoral ships, so meaning that they, you know, they're very close to the coastline. These are not deep ocean-going vessels. They have to, you know, be provisioned, as you say. The, the biggest thing was was potable water. You needed to be able to, you know, have a fresh supply of water, drinking water, so that men could drink. And you know, obviously, below deck, you need to keep your oarsmen hydrated as as, as best as possible. And so that that probably has. has part of the reason why this battle took place in this this uh what you what you say as a bay or a gulf uh a gulf yeah right outside the the mouth of the gulf yeah is where the battle actually took place so um yeah i mean you're you know it's it's that's part of the reason but it's also so they're going to be close to shore not too far off distance from it but also you know this was the fall it was october it was the end of the towards the end the real extreme end of the sailing season uh, in the Mediterranean, because most ships, there were very, very few ships that would operate during the, you know, the wintry months uh, in the Mediterranean because the conditions were just not conducive for the vessels at hand uh, to sail mm-hmm. during the tumultuous uh, months uh, of bad weather. So there was a, you know, a lull in 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 shipping uh, during those months, and so most, you know, uh, naval forces, you know, war, you know, warlike forces would would winter over somewhere. They would stop and and uh, anchor someplace and take on provisions and, you know, rest their troops and whatnot, you know, for a couple of months uh, during the, that bad weather time. And my understanding, too, I think it was from your book, but I, I've read a couple of resources be, before we uh, we talked, uh, is that the, the uh, Ottoman Navy uh, sort of, when it was in battle, would take on the shape of a crescent uh, for the battle. Is, and and I guess that's pretty significant in that it gives them a lot more ways to be able to fight. And at this point in time, in this battle, there were there were cannons. As I understand it, the cannons, for the most part, were on the front of the ships. That's right. That's correct. Yeah. So the Ottomans uh, and, and really Islamic forces for centuries had been, you know, one of their primary military tactics, both on land and sea, frankly, were to form up in the in the shape of a crescent, and they did that for really two major reasons. One, it, it's symbolic uh, for Islam itself, and uh, you know the crescent being one of the main symbols of Islam, and uh, so they did it that way as a symbolic gesture. But also, uh, it, their main way of, more importantly, their main way of 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 combat, the tactics that they pursued was to try to encircle and inflank. Uh, their enemy force, whether again on sea or on land. So most Muslim armies tried to be, especially on land, would try to be very mobile. 
um, and and fast, and so they relied, you know, more on on uh, you know cavalry and and you know light infantry rather than heavy armored infantry, for example, as the Western Europeans had done, especially during the time of the Crusades uh, to the Holy Land in North Africa. You know, you have your chain mail, and then later on, as you get to the uh, you know the 15th and 16th century, you have plate armor, things like that. But uh, you know, they were they were lightly armored, you know, fast moving, rapid, and so they designed that. So that they could, again, you know, they can attack their their enemy with the main force in kind of the main part of the crescent, but then the outer rim, so to speak, of of the crescent the, uh, on either side were to be the light rapid forces who would try to encircle the enemy and then be able to then attack them from all sides, right, and close them and then attack whether a, a naval force or, or a land force from all sides and defeat them that way. Again, folks, you're listening to Red Sea Roundup. My guest today is Steve Weidenkopf. We're talking about the Battle of Lepanto. And uh, if you have any comments or questions, you can call us at 85-LOVE-RED-SEA. That's 855-683-7332. Now, the Christians, Steve, used a different formation, which was rather unconventional, was it not? It was, yeah. The the commander of the Holy League forces here, so it's the combined forces of Spain and uh, Venice and the uh, the Holy and, and the Holy See, the Holy Father, his own the Papal States, his own um, naval force, he, uh, was Don Juan of Austria. So he was a, a young man, 24 years old at the age uh, at the at the time of the battle. He was the illegitimate son of the King of Spain, Philip II, and so he. Um, was or I'm sorry, he was the illegitimate son of the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, and he was the half brother of the King of Spain, Philip II. Uh, and so uh, Don Juan decided that how he wanted to, he and his um, you know, admirals and and, and military uh, you know uh, leadership decided they wanted to form their the Christian fleet into the shape of a cross. Uh, so literally, you had on October 7th, 1571, the Battle of Lepanto, the cross and the crescent clashed. Uh, and he did this primarily, um, obviously symbolic, but also because of the way he wanted the, to utilize some special weaponry he had in his arsenal uh, against the Turks. And the special weaponry he had were he took uh, several different gallus, galleys, which uh, were, were then called um, galluses, which he outfitted in a very unique and different way. So as you mentioned uh, correctly earlier, that most ships at this time, if, if they had cannons on board, uh, they would have been bow mounted, right? So mounted up in the bow of the front of the ship, because as I mentioned earlier, the whole purpose was to try to get your galley close enough to the enemy's galley to be able to ram it. So that's, you know, it would make sense to put your cannon in the front of your ship. But what uh, Don Juan decided to do was he wanted to take, he took, cannon and he put them on and for these special outfitted galluses he put them on the side he, he mounted them on the side of the ship so turning the ship sideways and putting all of the cannon uh, on the deck lined up against that way so obviously it increased the number of cannon that you could have on each ship and then if you were able to put these specially outfitted ships kind of bow to stern in a line in the form of a transept of a cross for example with the, the your fleet behind them then you could have this massive salvo of firepower of, of cannonballs, uh, you know, directed towards your enemy fleet. 
And so he knew that the Turks, you know, like to form up and like to fight in the shape of a crescent and that the main body of their fleet would be present in the main section of the crescent. So to counteract that. And so I should mention, too, that the Turkish fleet had about 300 vessels in it and the Christian fleet had, had about 200 vessels. So he was already outnumbered from the beginning and he knew that. And so to kind of help counteract that numer- numerical superiority of the Turks, he devised this way of, of putting these galluses together and, and outfitting them with side-mounted cannon. So when the Turk, when the battle engaged and the Turkish fleet came forward, that main body of it, you know, he unleashed this her, you know, horrific and horrendous firepower of these galluses. And, you know, it's estimated he destroyed one-third of the Turkish fleet in the first, you know, couple of minutes of battle. It was just amazing the, the firepower that this brought that was completely the Turks were unaware of, you know, completely unsuspecting. Um, and not only could you put side-mounted cantons on these these galluses, but then you also could put, um, you know, arquebusiers or, or musketeers, you know, uh, riflemen up on, although they weren't rifles, but still, you know, the infantry with, with, uh, with firearms up on top of the, the decks of these vessels, and they could increase the, the firepower uh, as well once the enemy ships got within range. So it was it was a brilliant uh, tactical um, you know technique on his part, and it revolutionized naval warfare afterwards. I mean, you know, then you begin to see as the centuries progress and, and the ships begin to change, become more ocean-going, then you begin to have, you know, side-mounted cannon become the, the uh, you know, the main element uh, of those types of vessels. Uh, it's, it's interesting. One thing I'd like to interject here, and then I want to talk about the Holy Father not putting all his eggs in the military basket. Uh, one of the things I think is very interesting here is with Don Juan, what it really shows is that God can use you no matter where you come from. You don't, you don't have to be born from saintly parents for God to be able to use you. And I think, that, I think that's a key thing that we need to remember that as, as, as Catholic Christians, uh, it, our, our past is not what matters. It's our present that really matters. And then uh, and I don't know if you have a comment on that, but I'd like to hear a little bit about what the Holy Father decided to do. Yeah, that's well. I mean, your comment about Don Juan, I think, is exactly yes. right. I mean, from a, from a spiritual perspective, right? I mean, we can look throughout the whole history of you know, salvation history and see, you know, God taking you know the the lowly, so to speak, and 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 you know uh, people who you wouldn't think, right, the fishermen or whatever, tax collectors, <laughs> um, and turning them into you know these uh, asking them to do great things for God. Uh, and 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 they do right through his grace, and so it's not always the high and mighty, you know, so to speak, or the or the uh, well off, or those who are you know born with with whatever kinds of titles and you know hereditary things behind them that do great things. Although sometimes that does happen, but yeah, it's it's you know like you said, you well put. It doesn't matter where who we who we uh, you know where we've come from, our family of origins, you know this or that. It's you know we're we're uh, you know. We can be utilized by by God for His greater purpose, and and our our role really in in our life is to is to understand what that role is that God has for us. What plan does He have for us specifically? How can we, um, you know, decrease in the words of John the Baptist and have Him increase in us, right, by following His plan for us? So that's one of the great things we can learn from history, right? In churches, there are many different great spiritual principles, but that's definitely one of them. So thank you for for pointing that out. Tell us about what the popes. Uh uh, what he did during this, all of this, and and then we'll talk a little bit about the wind change. Yeah. So what Saint Pius V did was, you know, obviously, you know, to go back a little bit, he 
he sent out this request for aid from the European nations. And as I mentioned, some responded, most did not. Uh, and then he, you know, he asked the people to pray. And so there was obviously a great spiritual element to this. And, and Pius V, a little background on him is, you know, he was he's Dominican. He is very much involved in the Catholic Reformation uh, from, from Trent, the, you know, kind of the, the reform of the church to, uh, to deal with the, the Protestant revolt and to get rid of some of the, the ecclesiastical abuses and corruption that had, again, helped spark that movement. And so he really wanted people to focus, you know, throughout Christendom on prayer and a reinvigoration of the spiritual life. And especially, obviously, the Dominican, he was very devoted to Our Lady and to the Rosary as well. And every sailor in the fleet, in this Holy League fleet of Don Juan's fleet before they, they left uh, Italy, were, were given a rosary and asked to pray for it uh, during the campaign, you know, asked to pray for victory during the, the campaign. There were chaplains, uh, you know, priests throughout the vessels of, of the fleet uh, to provide for the spiritual needs of the sailors uh, and of the soldiers. And so there was a, very, there was a great spiritual element to this. He granted a, an indulgence for those who participated in the campaign, which was very much in keeping with the crusading movement. Uh, as well. That was one of the main elements of, of a crusade. And so, uh, you know, he, he, he prayed, obviously, himself. I mean, he, this army, this navy, rather, was this fleet was sent off to do battle, uh, to protect Rome, to protect Christendom. And he prayed fervently to Our Lady as well for her intercession and for victory. And as you mentioned, during the, during the battle, there was this miraculous event that occurred um, where you have, you know, the prevailing winds in the Mediterranean favored the Turks in this particular battle, right? favored the, the defenders, if you will, um, as opposed to the Christian fleet that was attacking. And so, you know, when the, and I mentioned earlier that if you have the wind in your favor, you can use your sails, you can release more oarsmen from below deck and put them on the deck, and it gives you a greater numerical superiority. So at one particular point in the battle, on one of the wings, if you will, of, of where the fleets were engaged in battle, um, centered on the the Spanish flagship of Admiral Doria really was mm -hmm. uh, a, a very difficult fight, and it was going very much against the Christians. Uh, it looked as if maybe Admiral Doria's fleet was going to be destroyed by the by the Turkish uh, vessels, and and that they were going to then be able to come into the center of the Christian fleet and then attack it from that side as well. Uh, and then, but miraculously, at, at the point of battle where it seemed things were going to go completely wrong for the Christians in that area. The prevailing winds of the Mediterranean miraculously changed. Steve we're, Steve, we're going to have to cut it off at this point. If you can stick around for a couple of minutes afterwards, we can continue this discussion. Uh, you've been listening to Red Sea Roundup. And uh, remember, when choosing between the values of heaven and the values of earth, always round up. I